Hello, and welcome to Walt Disney Chapter 15. The reason Columbia was willing to spend $50,000 to extricate Walt from Pat Powers and the reason larger and more established distributors had avidly pursued Walt before Powers discouraged them was that Mickey Mouse was becoming a phenomenon. When Columbia took out a full-page advertisement in Film Daily that December proclaiming Mickey the most popular character in screendom, they may not have been far off. Even before the Columbia deal, one reviewer noted that Mickey Mouse is one of the very few cartoon stars to have his name featured by theaters on an almost equal basis with the feature screen attraction. A cartoon in the Saturday Evening Post that fall showed a wealthy man with a, with a pince-nez and cane at a theater box office window, digging into his pockets for the admission and asking the ticket seller, Am I too late for Mickey Mouse? An article in Literary Digest comparing Mickey Mouse to Charlie Chaplin, jazz band leader Paul Whitman, or Whiteman and detective stories claimed that he had also been discovered by the, intelli by the intelligentsia as these other exemplars of popular culture had. Chaplin reportedly demanded that a Mickey Mouse cartoon be played with his new film, City Lights, and Madame Tussaud requested permission to immortalize Mickey in wax. In one three-week stretch, Mickey Mouse received 30,000 fan letters, and by one estimate, one million separate audiences saw Mickey Mouse cartoons each year in the early 1930s. Nor was his popularity confined to America. Photoplay called Mickey the most popular motion picture star in all European countries and noted that English exhibitors often featured his name in lights four times as large as well-known stars. The German biographer René Philip Miller called Mickey the preeminent personality of the screen today and the only artist who exemplified in his work and technique the pure form of talking films. French critics from one end of the aesthetic spectrum to the other praised him, and an Austrian critic complained that he was now more popular than Mozart. Perhaps most telling of all about Mickey's popularity was how many of Walt's competitors were already imitating the mouse just as they had once imitated Felix. The Disneys brought suit against both Pathé and Van Buren for Mickey lookalikes and warned Mintz about a character who looked suspiciously like Mickey. At the same time, Harmon and Ising created a new character named Bosco who resembled Mickey. Dick Humor told Walt that the animators at Paramount and those drawing Crazy Cat for Mints got each Disney cartoon and ran them again and again so they could copy the work, at which Walt crowed, Our pictures are the center of attention back here. All the New York artists are trying to compete with them. By the early 1930s, a raft of analyses dissected what exactly made a round, chirpy little mouse so enormously appealing. When Walt was pressed to explain, his early assessments were surprisingly routine and superficial. He cited the constant motion in Mickey cartoons, the sharpness and brevity of the gags, and the exaggeration of emotions that were grounded in human experience and familiar to everyone. He told another interviewer that Mickey's size elicited sympathy and that when he triumphed the small over the big, the audience rejoiced with him. On another occasion, celebrating Mickey's 25th anniversary, he attributed his creation's appeal to simplicity. Mickey is so simple and uncomplicated, so easy to understand that you can't help liking him. And on still another occasion, when Aldous Huxley asked Walt what theory he employed behind Mickey, Walt threw up his hands and said, We just make a Mickey and then the, profs the professors come along and tell us what we got. 
The professors couldn't agree either, though, on the source of Mickey's appeal. Some thought he drew his appeal from the cultural currents of the 1930s. Animation historian John Culhane would say that in his very circular design, signaling a kind of impregnability, Mickey was the first was the first Mickey was the perfect expression of what he symbolizes, survival, which at the time he rose to prominence in the early days of the Great Depression was a powerful attraction to a nation that was itself trying and hoping to survive. More pointedly, writer and producer William DeMille saw in Mickey an idealistic altruist in the mold of Franklin Roosevelt, whose whole life suggested the beloved Don Quixote with Minnie Mouse as the fair, Dulci as the fair Dulcinea, and the good old Pluto, Mickey's dog, fulfilling the duties of Sancho Panza. Still, another scholar saw him as a representative of a new jittery machine age in which the jerky rhythm of his movements, the constant collisions, explosions, and projections are symbolic of nervous modern man living in a whirl of mechanical forces that multiply every physical action by ten to a thousand. Naturally, anyone subject to the same forces, and everyone was, empathized with Mickey, Still others, looking at the rise of totalitarianism in Europe at the time, believed Mickey to be a counterweight and antidote to an age of dictators and tyrants who stride the world like a colossus. In effect, meaning Mickey Mouse displaced reality for everyone the way he displaced reality for his own creator. He was so much a part of his time that, writing nearly 40 years after Mickey's first appearance, cultural historian Warren Sussman claimed that while political historians were likely to call the 1930s the age of Franklin D. Roosevelt, cultural historians would consider it the age of Mickey Mouse, both for the way the mouse seemed to confront the period's dislocations and agonies, and for the way he seemed to suggest a remedy to them. The Disney world is a world out of order. All traditional forms seem not to function, Sussman observed, and yet the result is not a nightmare world of pity and terror, a tragic world, but a world of fun and fantasy with ultimate wish fulfillment, ultimate reinforcement of traditional ways and traditional values. No matter how disordered the world appears, he wrote, Disney and his Mickey Mouse, any of his heroes or heroines can find their way back to a happy achievement by following the announced rules of the game. Meanwhile, some psychological approaches regarded Mickey as striking deep psychic loads. These analysts found Mickey's visual iconography to be reassuring. Circles never cause anybody any trouble, observed longtime Disney associate John Hench, comparing Mickey's shape to breasts, babies, and bottoms, while people have bad experiences with sharp points. Or, suggestive of the human, since Mickey's face was flat like the human face, or, as Iwerks once explained with a nod to Jung, expressive of wholeness since his face, a trinity of wafers and the circular symbol, unites the irreconcilable. Paleontologist Stephen J. Gold applied to Mickey anthropologist Conrad Lorenz's argument that certain features of, juvenile, of juvenility a relatively large head, predominance of the brain capsule, large and low-lying eyes, bulging cheek region, short and thick extremities, a springy elastic consistency, and clumsy movements trigger innate responses of affection so that Mickey Mouse, who had all these characteristics, was virtually constructed to elicit love. Children's author Maurice Sindak located Mickey's appeal in his plasticity. Sindak, found in the early Mickey cartoons, which featured kicking the ass, pulling the ears, tweaking noses, twisting necks, a passionate investigation of the body, eminently gropable in Sindak's view, and like a baby, Mickey finally gave the viewer the license to touch. New York Times film reviewer and later screenwriter Frank Nugent took a different slant on the theme of plasticity. 
He believed that Mickey Mouse stole screen slapstick from its life practitioners and then extended it because his elasticity exceeded theirs and that it was slapstick that made the cartoons appealing. Other observers traced Mickey's appeal to the way he summoned memories of childhood and the viewer himself, the spirit of the child in man which would delight in caricaturing all those heroes whom ordinarily we should regard with awe and reverence, as Harvard professor Robert D. Field wrote. A Dr. A. A. Brill, writing in 1934, thought Mickey Mouse narcotized his adult audience by taking them back to childhood when everything could still be attained through fantasy as Mickey attains things. Another doctor, drawing on Freud, called Mickey an ego ideal who appears to that part of childhood that is happy, who appeals to that part of childhood that is happy. One of the most popular veins of analysis was the idea of Mickey as a representation of freedom, which was inherent in the animation medium itself. He can break all natural laws. He never breaks moral laws and always win, observed time in 1933. He lives in the moment, has few inhibitions. It was not too great a stretch from this freedom to incorrigibility. Mickey, as quick and cocky and cruel at best a fresh and bratty kid, at worst a diminutive, a diminutive and sadistic monster, in Richard Schickel's words, or possessing a scandalous element in him which I find most restful, in E. M. Forster's. Indeed, some found Mickey too suggestive. A board of Ohio censors rejected one Mickey cartoon in which a cow was reading Eleanor Glenn's scandalous novel Three Weeks, while the Midwestern Balaban and Cats theater chain objected to Mickey milking a cow in The Carnival Kid, to which Walt protested that it has never been our intention to insert anything of a smutty nature, but wrote, I still cannot see where anyone could take offense at any of the stuff contained in our pictures. Even so, Maurice Sendak found an anarchy and greediness in Mickey's grin, the gleeful beam of a sexual freedom, and said that when he designed his own wild things for the book, Where the Wild Things Are, he based his drawings on this lascivious Mickey. That lasciviousness tied Mickey Mouse to another motion picture icon, Charlie Chaplin. Nearly every analysis of the early Mickey invoked Chaplin and cited the correspondences between the two, their leering aggressiveness, their impertinence, their sense of abandon, and especially what film historian Terry Ramsey at the time called the cosmic victory of the underdog, the might of the meek that they shared. Walt himself was certainly aware of the similarities because he had consciously used Chaplin, whom he once called the greatest of them all, as a model. In devising Mickey Mouse, he said, we wanted something appealing and we thought of a tiny bit of a mouse that would have something of the wistfulness of Chaplin, a little fellow trying to do the best he could. Ben Sharpstein said that Walt was constantly screening Chaplin films trying to pinpoint Chaplin's basic appeal, and another animator, Ward Kimball, recalled that Walt was always showing us how Chaplin did a certain thing. He just couldn't get him out of his system, Dick Humor said of Walt's obsession with Chaplin. Walt kept the feeling of this little droll kind of pathetic little character who was always being picked on, but cleverly coming out on top anyway. When Edward Steichen photographed Walt for Vanity Fair, Walt sent him a sketch of Mickey impersonating Chaplin. But if Walt had thought of Mickey Mouse as an animated surrogate for Charlie Chaplin, Mickey's other father, Ub Iwerks had thought of him in a very different and very different terms as Douglas Fairbanks. He was the superhero of his day, Iwerks said of Fairbanks, always winning, gallant, and swashbuckling. 
As for Mickey, he was never intended to be a sissy. He was always an adventurous character. I had him do naturally the sort of thing Doug Fairbanks would do. Thus, Mickey Mouse was born between two conceptions, between Chaplin and Fairbanks, between the scamp and the adventurer, between sympathy and vicariousness, between self-pity that translated into power through ingenuity and the bold assertion of power itself. From the first, he was an unstable creation, often veering from one pole to another and one cartoon to the next, plain crazy to Steamboat Willie, which meant that he could satisfy a wide spectrum of demands, but that he would always be on the verge of self-destructing. That is why the early Mickey seems so random and rootless, less a character than a visual icon. He does not know who he is. In the end, though he was patterned after both Chaplin and Fairbanks, he would find his identity elsewhere. He would find it as a projection of Walt himself. Walt identified intensely, almost passionately with his creation, as if Mickey were not just his brainchild, but an extension of him. Walt and Mickey were so simpatico, Lillian said, they almost seemed like they had the same identity. Playwright, film critic, and later presidential speechwriter Robert Sherwood, meeting Walt in 1931, wrote, Whenever he mentions Mickey Mouse, a note of reverent awe is evident in his voice. He loves that weird little animal as any mother would love her favorite child. Animator Les Clark said that Walt was Mickey and Mickey was Walt, observing that even Mickey's gestures were copied from Walt when he performed Mickey at story meetings, and one of Walt's most frequent story criticisms was, I don't think Mickey would act that way. Years later, Walt insisted, in an expression of just how bound to Mickey he was, that as long as there is a Disney studio, there will be Mickey Mouse cartoons because I can't live without him. In some sense, 28-year-old Walt Disney, whose previous cartoons had pervaded a discreet world but not an attitude, found his voice in Mickey Mouse. Mickey's intrepid optimism, his pluck, his naivety that often got him into trouble, and his determination that usually got him out of it, even his self-regard, branded him as Walt's alter ego, the fullest expression of Walt Disney. This was true of the themes of Mickey's films as well as his characteristics. When Mickey engaged in fantasy only to have it punctured by reality, as so often happened in his cartoons, he was acting out the central tension of Walt Disney's life. And if Walt found his voice in Mickey, Mickey Mouse literally found his voice in Walt Disney. The ninth Mickey, The Carnival Kid, released in July 1929, was the first in which Mickey spoke. His first words were, Hot dog! Hot dog! Though henceforth, Walt told his distributor the cartoons would regularly include singing and talking. But Walt was not satisfied with Mickey's voice, which was low, flat, and uninflected. It may have been Carl Stallings, and he promised to find someone whose voice would better fit Mickey's personality, even postponing the synchronization of the next Mickey while he spent a week testing candidates. By one account, a woman named Helen Lynn temporarily performed Mickey. But while Walt continued to search, he demonstrated one day how he thought Mickey should sound, assuming a falsetto. One of the staff asked him why he didn't just do the voice himself, and Walt agreed, joking, I knew I'd always be on the payroll, so I did it. Walt was often embarrassed at performing Mickey, and he later admitted that there were others who could do it, but he said his was the best voice because there is more pathos in it. While Mickey served as an, ex as an expression of Walt's personal mythology of trial and triumph, he also provided a self-reflexive commentary on his creator's own imagination. 
And this, as much as the cultural resonances or, resonances or the invocations of childhood or the sexual suggestiveness, may have accounted for Mickey's deep and abiding popularity. Whatever else he is, and he is indistinctly many things, Mickey Mouse is enthralled to his own abilities of imaginative transformation. Whether he is turning into an whether he is turning an auto into an airplane or a cow into a xylophone, Mickey, like Chaplin and like Walt Disney himself, is always in the process of reimagining reality, and this is his primal, vicarious connection to the audience, the source of his power. He sees and hears things others don't. He sees and hears things others don't. He makes the world his. It was no accident that Mickey arrived with sound and music, because music became the metaphor for his inner muse and the scent. And the, sign can, and the sign qua non of his existence. In his early years, and his early cartoons, some of which are musical reviews, he is wholly a musical creature, as much Fred Astaire as Charlie Chaplin. Hearing notes, Mickey cannot help but dance, sing, and make music himself, turning everything he spots into an instrument and converting reality into happiness. Even his relationship with Minnie Mouse is musically inspired. They literally make beautiful music together and bring joy and harmony, even fluidity, out of what is often threat and chaos. And this is also why the cartoons typically end with Mickey beaming or laughing, a chipper spirit no matter what has befallen him. For all the subliminal attractions of his shape or his size or his sexuality, Mickey's secret, the appeal of which is obvious and not limited to Depression America, is that he can always make things right in his head, just as Walt Disney, the escape artist, could. In the end, Mickey Mouse was the eternal promise of cheerful solipsism. Stay tuned for more next week.